I'm Bug, and I'm kind of small. And I'm Craig, and I'm kind of tall. Welcome to Small and Tall, where two best friends explore movies, franchises, and genres that wouldn't be covered on Permanent Good. What are we doing this month, Craig? Oh no, I got too many complaints that I didn't let you speak on last on the last episode, so No You, you get the helm. This is all you. This was all not pre discussed. I think this entire thing no. was set up to be your sub podcast. <laughs> I am just the weekly guest here. <laughs> Um, we are talking about some movies that are adaptations from Dark Horse Comics. Uh, Dark Horse Comics is, you know, one of the big publishers that aren't Marvel or DC. It's like Marvel and DC, Dark Horse Comics in terms of like popularity. So there's lots of movies that you probably didn't know were based on Dark Horse Comics. And so I wanted to talk about a few of these uh, this month. So we are going to be watching 300 the original Hellboy movie, The Mask, and Sin City. Uh, you know, as usual, Small and Tall is an all-spoilers podcast. If you, <laughs> you know, you, hey, we're letting you know now. No surprises, okay? So, uh, 300. 300. We definitely started with 300. Um, so, this is a comic that was written by Frank Miller, who also wrote the Sin City comic that we will be discussing at the end of the episode. He also wrote uh, The Dark Knight Returns, which is, you know, what a lot of people consider to be like one of the most quintessential Batman stories. So, you know, he's a pretty prolific uh, comics writer and the screenplay was written and it was also directed by Zack Snyder. And let me tell you, I am a Zack Snyder defender. Okay, like I liked Batman versus Superman. The Zack Snyder's Justice League is great. Okay, 300 is such an okay movie. I, yeah, it's this, look, I appreciate the way it was shot because it feels like you're reading a graphic novel, right? So it's pretty freaking cool. But the story, it could have been better. (laughs) So here's the story of 300, right? It's based on the, you know, the the story of King Leonidas uh, and his 300 men that went to fight, you know, King Xerxes of Persia, right? That's a that's a part of history. And the graphic novel was, you know, a historical fiction retelling of that story. And then, you know, then this movie is an adaptation of that. So it's kind of like a fictional game of telephone of like, how much distortion can we get along the way? Yeah, at the time of uh, watching this one, I'd seen it all, but this was my first time actually watching it all in one sitting, and it was... Yeah, I. this is the first time I've seen it as well. There are lots of iconic moments from this movie, uh, but <laughs> I've never seen it all the way through. And you know what? The iconic moments are the best parts of the movie. Hey, pop culture, you singled out the good parts. I mean, there's titties and sex in the first 20 minutes, so I see why all the guys like it, but... (laughs) Yeah, uh, the iconic moments from this movie, you know, the Spartan kick, which happens 15 minutes into the movie, uh, and then, like, the arrows blotting out the sun, which is closer to, like, halfway, end of the second act. 
Uh, everything other than that is just like fighting. I think overall, King Leonidas is a well enough fleshed out character. He is the only character in this movie that is fleshed out beyond his like governmental duties. I agree, but also like you have to think of how it's being told. It's being told as his story, so everybody else is just a secondary character. Yes, and this is true. But what it does mean is every time they cut back to any character that's not Leonidas, I'm like, this doesn't feel, this feels like padding almost. So every time we would cut back to Sparta, right? And there's this subplot going on of King Leonidas was not supposed to go on this journey to defend Sparta against the Persians. So his wife is in Sparta essentially doing damage control. Like, you know, my husband went on this unofficial mission. It's not technically waging war, but it is waging war and so i need to you know talk to the council of sparta and be like hey don't blow don't blow a gasket on this you know he knows what he's doing and you know in the process there's this really shady you know i don't know what the official term for it so i'm gonna keep calling it a council you know there's this one guy on the council that's like hey i will help you in your efforts to defend Leonidas's name and honor if you let me kind of aggressively have sex with you. Uh, and even after that uh, exchange happens, he still doubles, you know, betrays her and Leonidas. And when she is speaking at this council meeting, he's like, oh yeah, uh, she totally slept with me to try to keep her husband's honor intact. Like, she's trying to bribe me with flesh so that way I will also defend his name and I'm not gonna do that. So that whole kind of arc was just kind of upsetting to watch with no real good resolution. So I didn't, I just never enjoyed watching that. I mean, she got her revenge because she kills him and repeats his disgusting words back to him as he's dying so that was that was some pretty strong resolution then you find out that he's been a traitor this entire time to everybody because he's with the persians and you know that's just exactly how it was for you know queens and all of those stories from that time yes um i also (laughs) this goes back to we had a very similar conversation uh during our warriors discussion of like there are so many problems that would not be problems if there was not so much pride on the line so this whole war started because a messenger from persia shows up to sparta and he's like hey we want to keep sparta exactly as it is do not worry about anything all you need to do is give us a little bit of earth and a little bit of water as a show of like, hey, we're cool with the Persians. And King Leonidas is like, actually, screw that. 
I'm taking this personally, and I'm going to kill the king of Persia. Well, because once they ask for a little, they're going to ask for a lot. It's if you give a mouse a cookie. Everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah, I I also think there was a little bit of like a sunk cost fallacy towards the end of the movie. Because Xerxes is like, hey, again, we will not touch Sparta. It will be wealthier than you could ever imagine. You will be the king of, you will be our personal warlord. You can do effectively whatever you want. You just need to stop, man. And he's like, no, I refuse. And again, I understand that's part of their culture. I'm not trying to, you know, change the whole thing with one broad stroke, but all I'm saying is we could have toned it down a little bit, dude. Just a smidge, maybe. I just want to know where everybody was getting the creature humans noids. Creature humanoid thingamabobs. Are you talking about, like, the oracle and, like, the people that were, like, watching the oracle? No. I'm talking about all the people in battle that were, like, just mangled and their hands turned into cleavers and they looked like they came straight out of the pits of Tartarus. Yes, yeah, there were definitely a few people that were, like, um... When your parents are trying to scare you about the concepts of body modifications, <laughs> they show you these people and they're like, this is what you become if you get your nose pierced. Yeah, like where where'd they find the, you know, eight foot tall cyclops looking man? Yeah, good question. Uh, there are some really cool... Uh, I, I think the Persians have really cool costume designs, like, specifically Xerxes. Like, I really liked that character design. Um, it's like all the energy went into this one guy because everyone else was in their underwear. Hey, they were all sculpted in their undies, though. <laughs> They were. Yeah, I was looking through the trivia for this movie and like Gerard Butler had to do four hours of training pretty much every day, even during no. filming to like keep no. this physique. I'd and never. I'm like, hey, more power to you, man. Also, I learned Gerard Butler has not been in nearly as many things as I thought he's been in. No. I know him from this and Phantom of the Opera. That's it. It's just everything that he's been in becomes a meme. Yeah, and so, like, I get Gerard Butler and Russell Crowe confused a lot because Russell Crowe is the one in Gladiator. Yeah. And so, like... They and also is. look pretty similar. Yeah. Uh, so they have a very similar career trajectory, <laughs> but almost every movie that I think is a Gerard Butler movie, it's actually a Russell Crowe movie. Oh my God. Uh, also, you know, uh, Cersei Lannister plays the queen in this movie. And, you know, she does a fine job. I actually really like her character. Um, she is pretty boiled down to the woman that stands behind her husband, but she does it in a very, like, I think historically traditional fashion of, like, I am a queen and I have my own power. That power does reside with my king, but when my king is not here, you still need to treat me with respect or you will get messed up. Damn, Skippy. I, I, I liked her character for how bold she was and how she was very like strong in that power that you just described. But I also hated what they did with her because like 
she didn't need to go through that. There was there was no reason for that. But, you know, men always need to be pigs. And sometimes they always need to have that in their movies. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a little on brand for uh, Frank Miller books, unfortunately. Um, when we get to Sin City, we're going to see a little bit more of that as well. And I really, like, it causes a lot of inner conflict with, like, the purist in me because I see her character do that. And I understand that, like, she doesn't have a choice. It, you know, she really doesn't have any stake in the matter. And it's just, like, it's just rough to watch. It just, it hurts. It is not fun. No, it pisses you off. It is, in off. fact, a bad part of the movie. It is there to just make you angry and make you be like, holy shit there's already so much bad happening and it just like destroys any character development she could have had yes i will say the the relationship between uh michael fassbender's character and then the really young guy who ends up getting decapitated who's like the the captain's son or whatever those moments i did appreciate with them just bantering with each other but of course their banter is what got the one dude killed because they weren't Closing ranks. They were just standing there staring at everybody closing ranks. <laughs> uh, this is Michael Fassbender's film debut, which uh, if I wasn't looking at the cast while I was watching this movie, would not have picked up on it. Because this movie stylization is very unique for better or for worse. And as a result of that, all the white guys look the same. The only reason you recognize certain characters is simply because of the location they are in. And like, like I would not have recognized Michael Fassbender if I wasn't like explicitly told, hey, Michael Fassbender is in this movie. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, that white guy does have a different face shape. <laughs> slightly, slightly. All, all the same colored men, of course. And once they start like talking different character names like ah man all all of those are just gone gone i was not able to yeah not a single one i i know leonidas i know alpha yep because he was the hunchback yeah and i know xerxes because he's the antagonist that's it that's all i got you know it's bad when i'm referring to everybody as their actor name and not their character name yes Um, I personally didn't love the saturation style of this movie. Uh, it makes everything look really bland and everything difficult to parse in terms of like setting and like indication in terms of setting. Like, I I don't know. All the rocks looked the same. I think that was was on purpose. Yeah, and I understand that a lot of the movie takes place in a single location, so of course a lot of it is going to look similar, but it got to a point where, like, it was kind of difficult to just see what I was looking at. Now, that being said, I want to give some kudos to Zack Snyder, because Zack Snyder is a very um, uh, faithful adapter, because I have not read the 300 comic. Uh, it was at my school library, but it was in the single, like, um, omnibus. It was in the single omnibus. And let me tell you, omnibuses are very intimidating. They are big. Um, but I also know, even through watching this movie, I can pick out exactly frame-perfect adaptations. Because there's, like, a scene, you know, at the beginning of the movie 
uh, Leonidas is going through his training regime as a kid, and he, like, is holding his spear against the shadow of the wolf, and I'm like, I don't even have to look it up. That's a frame from the comic. I just know that for sure. And, you know, the arrows blotting out the sun, you know, that's a frame from the comic. Uh, Scenes of, like, them riding horses into the sunset, that's probably a frame from the comic. Like, Zack Snyder is very good about that. Like, Love him or hate him, he really does care about the source material. Imagine uh, abusing children and manipulating them to turn them into soldiers and death machines because... Yeah, that's... That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. this is kind of a part of Spartan culture. I remember learning about it. Um, I forget the name of it. It's like the Agage or something like that. Like, I remember learning about that in my history class in college. And I'm like, huh, that's messed up. Just a little bit. Effective, but messed up. <laughs> Effective, but messed up. <laughs> also, you know... Something that this movie kind of brushes off due to the fact of it being made before 2020 is like Sparta was also a very gay culture. You know, King Leonidas calls the Persians or no, he calls uh, Athenians uh, boy lovers. Um, Spartans were notorious for, you know, being gay. Uh, in fact, so much so that when they would get married to women, the women would have to shave their heads to look more like a man for when they first slept with their husbands. <laughs> I love that. So, you know, let's knock that, let's not knock that completely off the table. And that's why I thought that, you know, Fassbender's character and the young soldier were totally gay for each other. It was just obvious. You could tell. Oh, for sure. Definitely. 100%. Yeah. Um, overall, I think this movie is a fine action movie. Um, I don't think it's anything deeper than that. It's going to make you upset sometimes. Uh, but there are cool moments in it. Um, Zack Snyder loves his slow-mo and, you know, this movie shows it. It's, I think it's used well in some points, but, you know, excessively in others. Like, they didn't need it in every battle. For sure, definitely. I'm glad I watched this movie before I read the graphic novel, just because I'm like, (laughs) I don't think I'm going to like it. I thought about reading it, but I'm like, after watching the movie, if it's even like 15% like this movie, I'm like, you know what? This is a genre for someone else, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I won't have that graphic novel in my hands anytime soon either. There there are things wrong with this movie. Some of it's subjective. Some of it just kind of nasty. Um, so I'm comfortable rating this movie like a six. It's fine. I don't regret watching it. Um, it's well made. There are just some stylistic choices that I don't love, but whatever. Not that big a deal. I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, I can agree. It's definitely like a like a five and a half, six to me. It's nothing that I'll go out of my way to put on, but if somebody else has it on, I'm not going to be like, oh man, this movie. Moving on to Hellboy, you know, the 2004 Guillermo del toro hellboy um this movie is good it's this movie so is good. good i love this movie and this movie was also made with a lot of love um unfortunately i'm not as familiar with the hellboy comics so like um i can't tell you how true of an adaptation this is compared to the original comics but like mike magnolia the writer of hellboy was very involved in the process he sat down with del toro a lot of times you know he him and del toro like unanimously decided on ron perlman for hellboy which like solid is great casting like almost perfect 
if not perfect. Um, I did also watch the 2019 Hellboy, and David Harbour was not a bad Hellboy. He was just in a bad Hellboy movie. Interesting. I haven't seen them yet. They've been on my list, but I just haven't got around to it yet. And and I don't blame you. Like, the special effects are okay. The f- The makeup is... Like, any special effects that's not David Harbour's makeup is pretty not good, actually. Mm. Um, But we're not here to talk about that Hellboy. We're talking about the good Hellboy. Um, And I actually want to start this conversation by talking about Doug Jones, uh, my man, my boy. He's He plays Abe Sapien in this movie. And that man and Del Toro have a thing for fish prosthetics. I was going to say, do you think... Do you think that Shape of Water is just Abe's origin story? Probably because, you know, uh, Doug Jones provided the physical performance for this Hellboy, the physical and vocal performance in Hellboy 2. Uh, He was also the fish man in Shape of Water, also directed by Del Toro. And the reason why I'm bringing this up in the first place is because he plays... You know, Commander Saru in Star Trek Discovery, who is also a fish-like creature in prosthetics. So I'm just like, Doug Jones, what a weird typecast you've got yourself in. Hey, you need a fish guy wearing prosthetics the whole time? I'm your guy. You want like a six foot six, like fish guy? Call Doug Jones. I'm your guy. I'll do it for four seasons. I don't care. I was a little upset that David Hyde Pierce provided the voice for uh, Abe Sapien in this movie. Just because I feel like I get it that this was kind of like Doug Jones breakout. So like, you know, they probably didn't have like the utmost faith that he could do both. But like listening to it, David Hyde Pierce does do a good job. And he didn't get a, he did not accept credit for this role because he's like, no, this was all Doug Jones. This was all him. Um, right. But anyway, that's me. I'm done fangirling about him. Uh, we can move on to other parts now. Uh, I loved this movie when I was younger, and I don't know what that says about me, but it says something. Yeah, this movie, it just, just, uh, this movie just does a really good job at portraying that, like, gritty witty sassy like hard-headed character that i think just is like really popular now and i think hellboy paved a lot of way for that oh for sure for sure it also does a really good job at blending you know mythos with reality in that kind of like indiana jones kind of way right uh just a little bit more demonic and if you're cool with that you know it's really good were you allowed to watch this when it came out or is this one that you had to wait to watch um no one stopped me from watching this movie i don't think i tried to watch this movie young i remember being in at least middle school when i saw this movie for the first time oh i saw this movie when it came out at five years old. <laughs> you were five. I was. And that's why I'm, what I mean by me loving this movie when I was five says something about me. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I also wasn't interested in like adult movies until I was in like middle school. So, you know, up through elementary school, I was still pretty knee deep in like, you know, the the very clearly kid acceptable movies. Yeah, I had older brothers um, and wanted to be as cool as them, so. I mean, I think the most, like, mature movies I watched as a kid was Star Wars. 
So anything past that, you know, wasn't until middle school. Um, and I, I've only seen Golden Army once, and I do need to remedy that because I really enjoyed rewatching this. So I need, I need to kick it with Golden Army too. Um, there's also some other good casting in this. John Hurt as like Professor Broom, Chef's Kiss, so good. Um, John Myers is his last name. He's also really good. Um, the only one I didn't super care for was Selma Blair. Um, and I don't she, think she also it was, wasn't in a, I was gonna say, I don't think it was her fault. I think it was the script she was given. Yeah. She wasn't in an awful lot of this movie. She's like, Hey, you're Hellboy's love interest who is disinterested in him until the last like 10 minutes. So work with that, I guess. So that's, you know, I'm not familiar with much of her other work. It's just that, you know, her character in this, be it her fault or the script's fault, could have used some punching up. Definitely. And knowing her from other stuff and liking her other stuff, I can say that it definitely was lack of character depth in the script. Hey, so... I fangirled for Doug Jones so long, I forgot to tell people what this movie's about. I was just about to circle you back. Don't worry. I was going to reel you back in. So if you if you want to know what Hellboy is actually about, basically in the 40s, some Nazi scientists want to open a gate to talk to, like, gods and demons and whatnot. And uh, Professor Broom brings, like, an American troop to the, to the dig site. And he's like, we need to not let this happen. And uh, it happens a little bit. And in that little bit, Hellboy emerges from the portal as a baby, essentially. And so Professor Broom kind of cares for him, nurtures him, and basically creates this section of the government that's like a supernatural task force. That's like, hey, anything demonic that, you know, shows up in the real world, send Hellboy out to fight it. And the movie is about... The Nazi that originally opened that portal comes back and is like, hey, let's open the portal again and finish the job. And so it's Hellboy and the gang trying to stop him from reopening the portal as well as dealing with, you know, the minor threats that come along with it affecting the local population. And, and that explanation brings me to the point of like, I think what I would love for Hellboy and the reason why I don't, and the reason why I think that no Hellboy movie is perfect is because I don't think Hellboy should be a movie. I think what I would love, and I know we're not going to get it because HBO Max is plummeting. Oh, good gravy, it's sinking. Like a, <laughs> like a, oh boy. Is I would love just a high budget, you know, eight episode per season series where, you know, every two episodes is like a supernatural-esque mission where hey there's a local crime or there's a local problem let's take two episodes and hellboy figure it out and then do that four times per season because i really think that like hellboy would shine in like a monster of the week or monster every other week type format i definitely agree do you think do you think amazon prime could pull it off amazon yo amazon please i'm begging you please i'm begging you one chance that's all we need please you you did you did wheel of time you're gonna do wheel of time and you're not gonna try this wheel of time took eight books before it got good oh shit you're just laying it all out there craig (laughs) 
Um, I just think this movie, like it, I think above all else, the plot is thin at best. The chemistry between Ron Perlman and Selma Blair is objectively not there. But boy, does this movie nail an aesthetic so hard that I just can't back down from. I love the aesthetic of this movie so much. Just like that gritty, cigar-smoking, like, Constantine-esque character is like, oh man, it's it, like, it just hits different. I absolutely love the scene where it's Hellboy and um, the FBI guy, and it's like after they have their big argument, and then Hellboy saves the FBI guy's life, and then he like lights the cigar with the match. Yeah, like Jeffrey Tramber's character. Yeah, and he lights yeah. the cigar with the wooden match, and he's like, no, it preserves the flavor. And it's like, okay, Olive Branch, I see you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I really think that this movie does slow action very well in the sense that like Hellboy by nature is a bulky slow character so when he does action scenes it has to be deliberate and it's going to be clunky and it just works because the creatures that he's fighting in this movie either are also big or are nimble and low damage. So like he's fighting these like dog predator type creatures and sure they're fast, but like they're also just as big as him. So he knows how to take them down. And then he has to fight, you know, this ninja made of sand, which like talk about that character design. That'll give you nightmares. And you know, that that guy just didn't do any damage to him because he has a stone hand to block with. Yeah, everything I was just going to say just went out of my mind. I hate it. Why does this happen once a recording? I had so much to say. Um, I'll, I'll go so far as to say I did not like Jeffrey Tambor's character in this movie. Um, uh, he plays, you know, the kind of head of the this division of the FBI, you know, this supernatural division. And he's supposed to be this, like, breathing down your neck, trying to get Hellboy to play by the rules. He's supposed to be the stick in the mud. But for some reason, it just, it comes across as like, not, it comes across almost like a, as a display of power more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't have anyone's best interest in mind. He just doesn't want to get in trouble himself. Exactly. Um, why did they start us in the middle of some of Blair's story arc and then not explain yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it was so kind of junky or so kind of janky that when she blew up that hospital in the middle of the movie, I thought that was a flashback. Yeah, almost. Because I'm like, oh, she's in a hospital. And because uh, it happened while Myers was reading her file. So I thought that Miles was reading her file and it was visualizing to us what happened to get her sent to the Bureau in the first place. But no, this is a new event. And it took Myers showing up to the scene to be like, oh, this just happened. Oh, okay. Um, so I just like, uh, this script could have used a few rewrites, maybe a character cut, maybe a complete format change. Hey, it was um, still but, good though, in but, the end. But it is good. It is good. Like I said, if nothing else, if absolutely nothing else, like the vibes carry this movie. Definitely. Um, I'm I'm gonna say this movie's like a seven and a quarter. 
that's exactly where I was going to put it, too. Yeah, so, like, obviously improvements can be made, but, like, as far as, like, the first attempt at a Hellboy movie, they got pretty close. This was also one of those movies where me taking not cussing as a child so seriously meant that I never knew whether or not I could say the title of this movie when talking to my parents. <laughs> so I'd be like, I want to watch this one. Can we watch H-E double hockey sticks? Can we watch H-L double H-E double hockey sticks, uh, boy? Can we watch Heck Boy? Can we watch Heck Boy? <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a funny, similar anecdote is I, when I, I had just as a kid watched, um, the movie Little Nicky with Adam Sandler, which if you're not familiar, is a movie where Adam Sandler plays like a, a demon that's too nice to be in hell. So he gets sent to Earth to learn how to be mean again. And I think I watched that movie when I was in like fourth grade or whatever. And I remember trying to explain that plot to like my theater director at the time without saying the word hell Right. Because I was afraid to. And I just remember thinking back on that moment and being like, ah, kid, shut up. Ooh, kid, stop talking. Because I kept trying to be like, you know, because he plays this character from down there. And I'm like, ah, oh, no. Ah, oh, stop it. Ooh, that hurts. Ooh, ooh. Uh, anyway, Hellboy rules. Amen. Before we start talking about the mask, do you ever think like, what if Don't Worry Darling isn't good? Uh, Do you think about that? Because I think about that. I think about that a lot, actually. (laughs) Because, like, Florence Pugh has all but said, she has all but asked us directly to not watch the movie. Well, because she just knows that everybody's only going to be focusing on those sex scenes. And it's like, come on. Yeah, and that's fair. And I know that she, she and Miss Wilde got beef, which, like, from what I've heard, is understandable. Yeah, um, yeah. But listen, everyone's like, yeah, Harry Styles. Yeah, Florence Pugh. I'm going there for my man, Chris Pine. Like, Honestly. He's 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 the reason why. Unsung um, hero. And like, why is Nick Kroll in that movie? <laughs> like, the reason I'm going is to, you know, look at Dreamboat Chris Pine and solve the mystery as to how Nick Kroll got cast in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> And then Florence. And then Florence. Yeah, and then Florence. In that order. In that order, yeah. Um, Okay, let's talk about The Mask. I tried watching this movie recently, like within the last year-ish, and I bailed pretty quick, (laughs) like like 30 minutes in. I'm like, oh, this movie is not as funny as I remember. That's exactly how I was. And so, you know, committing to the rest of this movie, this movie is not great, no. Um, but I, I think it is the lowest common denominator in terms of Jim Carrey movies. So let's break down the mask. Um, Jim Carrey plays a character named Stanley Ipkiss. And, you know, he's down on his luck, you know, works a dead end job at the bank, can't score with any girls, lives by himself until one day he finds the mask of the god of mischief Loki and at night when he puts this mask on he turns into a cartoonish version of himself that runs rampant across the town and honestly that's about as deep as the plot gets for most of the movie it's 
primarily a comedy. There are some scenes of action, but for the most part, it is a live action cartoon. Yeah. Uh, as a child, I genuinely liked this movie, but yeah, me now, too. now a lot of the like humor in it reminds me of like the cringe comedy influencers. Yes. Yeah. That's that's not. Uh, that's not unfounded because a lot of this humor is like nobody but Jim Carrey could have done what happened in this movie. Exactly. I'm not saying Jim Carrey was the perfect choice for this movie, but he made it what this movie is. And because of that, there's a lot of physical comedy. And if physical comedy is not your thing, it's going to be a rough 90 minutes. Yeah, it definitely doesn't pick up until the second half when all the, like, major action happens. Yeah, because I don't even want to call it the plot, because it feels, the, the movie treats it like a subplot of how there's a gang in the city who um wants to rob a bank, and while wearing the mask, Jim Carrey robs said bank, and so now this gang wants to get their money back and take out the mask in the process. The movie does not treat it like that's a high-stakes problem until, like, the last 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah, until then, it's just like, all right, this is just happening. It's kind of in the background, but, you know... The mask wants the girl. Also, imagine having as much raw sex appeal as Cameron Diaz in 1994. Yes. <laughs> oh, goodness, yeah. Because this is her film debut. She was a model before this, so she had yeah. a little bit of star power already. But in terms of like being the lead, being like the female lead in a movie, this is her film debut. And I, th- this is probably the best role I've seen her in. Um, live action, you know, like she kills it as Shrek in Shrek. Yeah. Um, but in terms of live action, you know, I think this is probably her best performance. Um, and her character isn't that comedic. She is the straight man in most of this movie. Um, not to say that she like doesn't have fun with the movie. She plays along with all of the masks antics, but like she is not cracking jokes. No. But, like, I could never. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not with that attitude, like, you can't. I, no, I, this is just realistically viewing myself. That is a talent of its own. Okay, well, this could be a debate that could last the entire anyway, podcast. So I'm going to anyway, force us to move anyway, on. Anyway, um, anyway, why did they choose green? Why did they have to make it an atrocious color? <laughs> well, okay, so this is a good transition to talk about the comic. Um, I, I I have not read the comic, but I am familiar. I, I do know that in terms of adaptation from the source material, this movie is pretty much name alone. Um, because the comic does like, it's not a comedy comic. It is dark. It yeah. is gory. It is violent. Yeah. And... So this movie is just kind of like, let's take the concept and then make that a comedy movie. And I get it. I think that especially in the 90s, um, this movie makes a lot of sense, especially with the adaptation that it's like, with the source material that it is adapting. Right. Um, 
And so I'm sure, you know, the color palette in the comic is fine. Actually, I don't know if it's in color. It might be in black and white, but I'll, I'll double check. Well, now that I think about it, I'm 90% sure that it's just green for Loki. It is, but, yeah. But why that color green? Yeah, and in the comics, it is um, a darker green, usually. It's not that kind of like mustard green that we see. Yeah. <laughs> Yucky. I think... The worst part about it is not the fact that it's green. It's the fact that it's that shade of green paired with that shade of yellow. Right, yeah. Yikes. <laughs> Icky. Because okay. I'm looking at some of the panels from the comic right now, and he has the yellow suit, obviously. And the shade of green that they have for that suit, or the shade of green that the mask has compared with that yellow, makes so much more sense. Like, it's it's a little bit of a deeper green with, like, a less toned yellow. Right. And, like, this is better. This is way better. Stick um, to the source was, material. And I think what was difficult about the mask makeup to look at was just kind of, like, that hard cutoff point directly on his jaw. Yeah. Like, it created kind of, like, a jarring disconnection between his head and neck. And I'm like, you're difficult to look at now. They should have let. This is a reminder, everybody. Always blend down your neck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this movie carries a lot of Beetlejuice energy. Um, specifically the character of the mask, which is to say that like he is near omnipotent. He takes you know every opportunity for a joke, makes a lot of references, uh, takes things literally, and like plays around with the mortal beings around him. This is Except, this is Beetlejuice before he died. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um I don't think this movie I uh, know there are parts of this movie that are funny. Um like but not a lot. Like I think the only moment that really made me laugh like out loud is after the scene in the park, when he exits the gates, turns around and sees the entire police force and then um, his face does like four layers of exclamation. Yeah. Like that was the only <laughs> bit that made me laugh out loud. And then the sequence immediately after that is like a three minute um, Latin pop number where he's like forcing the entire police force to dance. Here for and it. I, and okay, then this is a divisive topic. No, I think <laughs> I was just here for it because it was it, it was a little bit funny because I'm like, okay, yeah, make and, them dance. And that's fair. Okay, I, and I don't want to. I don't want to harsh on that. I was looking through the trivia for this movie, and it said that the studio hated that. They really they tried so hard to cut that number from the movie because they thought it dragged on too long and was not funny. Okay, it dragged and on a little longer than it needed to. Like they didn't need the full song. <laughs> It dragged on for like a full minute longer than it needed to. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah, like you said, they do the whole song it, and thirty seconds, thirty seconds, forty-five, maybe. 
So this kind of goes back to the whole concept of like the mask had all this power. So he's goofy with it. And the concept of the mask is that it brings out the feelings that the wearer is already wearing, which is why when Stanley puts on the mask, he's this hopeless romantic type character. But when one of the gang people puts the mask on, he becomes this like impish brute. Right. Which is horrifying to look at. Dude. Oh, man, he looked so... Ooh, yeah. I I liked the character design in terms it did a really good job of physically portraying his characteristics, especially when they are cartoonified. Yeah. But, yeah, it was... Oh, man, veins and bones and veins and bones. Boots and cats and veins and bones. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it like you said, it definitely did a good job of like, you know, showing kind of like proving Stanley's point that it shows your like innermost person, but like cartoonified or over exaggerated, I guess, because like, yeah, he was like silly, goofy, like flirty, sometimes creepy. But then the other guy was just like pure aggression and red eyed evilness, I guess. Yeah, this movie also, maybe it's a symptom of it only being 90 minutes, but quite frankly, I don't know if I could have watched a longer movie. No. Um, Stanley had no reason to want to stop the gang, in my opinion. Like, obviously, he wanted to get uh, Tina, I think is uh, Cameron Diaz's character name. Like, he wanted to get her out of trouble, sure, but like, in ter- like after he gets the mask and like is a legitimate threat like i feel like stanley was too normal to like put himself back into danger he had no hero qualities so even when he did have a heroic moment it almost felt out of character for him because there was no lead up to this he never like had the desire to be heroic. He never felt heroic. And so when he was heroic, it just felt like, oh, he's the main character and he needs to solve the problem. I think that was more like those moments were more the mask talking because you have to think like, yeah, he could have just like gotten Tina out of trouble, but then they still would have been after him. So if he could just take them all down, then he wouldn't have to worry about it and could just live his life as is. I think specifically about the scene where he's in jail and Tina is talking to him and and Stanley's like, we have to stop him. We don't know what trouble he's going to cause. I'm like, that's not your problem, dude. And you know that. Well, I I think he's concerned about what trouble's going to happen when he has the mask on because he knows what you can get into while wearing the mask. So if he's evil while wearing the mask, then it's going to be real bad. And it's his fault that the mask is in this dude's hands now. I agree. I just think that if I was in that situation, I would be like, oh, this is above my head now. Like, um, that's why it's a movie. Like, yeah. So, I know. It just, like, it did. Stanley never felt like a hero character. And it, so it just, it felt a little like, it felt a little bit too much like main character syndrome in the third act specifically. That's valid. I could see it. Um, I also, this movie. The gang in this movie felt like such a 90s movie gang. Oh, absolutely. Like, 
you could cycle this gang with the gang from like Batman Returns with the gang from like any other like popcorn 90s action movie. It's all the same. Like the gang from Rush Hour. It's all just um it's like, oh, we're just a bunch of tough guys with submachine guns. Right. And that's it. Like, wow. He's so tough. So tough. Where's your personality? Oh, you're a tough guy? How about Ooh, some personality? Look at you in your suit jacket and your guns. That's all you have oh. going for you. Ooh, you have a big office and lots of women. Ooh. Ooh, you have a cigar. Wow. <laughs> um. <laughs> now that that's over. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this movie, I know. (laughs) I am, I think I'm the least inspired to read the comics after watching this movie. Yeah, I definitely won't be going near them anytime soon. (laughs) Um, I really, dude, very rarely does a movie stump me to come up with more conversation topics than a movie like this. I'll, I'll say this, I'll say this. Um, this movie is probably most infamous for spawning like one of the worst movies of all time in its oh, sequel, God. Son of the Mask. That movie is now, horrible. I've only seen that movie maybe once, and it was when I was camping and I was with a bunch of kids that I didn't know, oh, and we were no. all huddled around like a like an eight inch television watching this movie and i like did not get it at all it's one of those moments where i've had this conversation with you before where like i didn't feel like i was there i was merely just experiencing things around me but i was never truly in the moment that was one of those moments where i'm like life is happening around me but i don't feel like I'm experiencing anything right now. And I don't know if that movie caused that feeling, but (laughs) I wouldn't, I wouldn't write it out of the equation. Yeah. It, uh, isn't very memorable other than the baby shaking maracas in this, in the womb. And, uh, the dog wearing the mask. Yeah. Which like, you know, we get in this one too. So it was kind of just like, all right, cool. Um, I, uh, also, I guess the only other thing to mention legitimately, the only other thing to mention is that the psychologist in this movie, who is in two scenes, has maybe four minutes of screen time, is the economics teacher from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes. That's it. That's it. So, like, at first I'm like, oh, is this guy, he reminded me of, um... The dude from Ghostbusters, whose name escapes me. Um, yeah, he, he reminds me of, like, the actor that plays Egon, um, Harold Ramis. Mm. But, like, he's not. No, not quite. Um, but, yeah, I know. I have literally nothing else to say about this movie. This movie is, like, I know. It, it, like a flat five, I think. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Maybe even, like, a four and a half. But the fat, that, 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 that. Uh, last uh, 0.5 there is that brings you up to the five is just nostalgia. I feel like I feel like this is a good yeah. movie for a younger group. Yeah, this movie I don't really feel like it it brings much to the table. It's um it's not offensively bad. It's just boring and it, it, like 
It's not like these guys didn't try to write jokes. There are very clearly jokes in this movie. It is purely if you find them funny or not. And I I just think at this point in my life, I don't. Yeah, this is a movie that I'll watch for the memes every couple years. But otherwise, I think it's better as a memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He puts the mask on. He looks in the mirror. He says, somebody stop me. Smoking. And P-A-R-T-Y. All within like 45 seconds. <laughs> and that's pretty much all that people reference from this movie. So you're good after that. Pretty much. Pretty much. There's like maybe one or two in there. But yeah. What's next, Greg? Uh, We're going to talk about Sin City. Now, Sin City is another Frank Miller joint. And it shows. (laughs) And it shows. (laughs) So I've always said this about Sin City because I have read Sin City. Um, It is the most well-written piece of misogyny that you will ever lay your eyes upon. And I think this movie is no different. It is beautifully crafted, but oh man, they should have had a few more women run through that script. And they had so many powerful women in the movie. Yeah. Um, So Sin City is uh, an anthology movie, as is the comic series. Each book is a different story. Um, And so there's, there's three stories told over four segments. Um, each of them with their own distinct plot line with a very narrow interwoven thread. Um, the first and last one, I think is my favorite. Be- the first and last one is the same story, just told in different segments. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about Bruce Willis, who protects this little girl. He, She gets kidnapped. He rescues her. And um, he gets convicted of her kidnapping and a a made up sexual assault. And so he gets thrown in jail. And while he is in jail, this girl writes him letters. Sorry. The mask trailer is still up while I'm talking. (laughs) And I just watched the dog pee on a bunch of gangsters. So I just have to close this tab entirely. (laughs) As I was saying, (laughs) um, (laughs) <laughs> I didn't think it was that funny, but okay. That was just the delivery. Um, I, Sorry. And uh, and so Bruce Willis is like, hey, you can't write to me. These people are still after you. If they find out that we're still in contact, then they'll hunt you down. And she goes, don't worry. I'll cover my identity. It's all good. And so after Bruce Willis eventually gets let out of prison, he goes, tracks her down, and then... She gets discovered. He has to protect her once again. I don't know. I like that story because it's the it's a very good trope of grizzled old man protects young child. Right. It, it's that Mandalorian Grogu effect. Um, and it's very similar in that storyline as well. Um, and, and this is where we get to the Frank Millerness of it all because when they reunite. You expect it to be like a father-daughter relationship. No. Because he's like 60 and she is clearly stated 19. Uh, no. They like make out several times. And I'm like, ooh. Really not. Frank, Frank, did we have to do this? Really not fighting against that sexual assault charge there. If I yeah. do say so myself. And um, this movie is very incredibly stylized. 
um, because the comic is in black and white, this movie is also in black and white with a few notable exceptions. It does that thing where it's like, if it wants you to pay attention to something, it will color it. And I usually, love that. Usually a blood red or a golden yellow. Or blue or green. Everyone's yeah. Out. But I love that. I love the use of color throughout the lack of color. Yes, I agree. I very much agree. Can, can we talk about, just for a second, how the cast descriptions on um, IMDb, like for all the Old Town Girls, it says Old Town Girl, except for one of the black Old Town Girls that just says Old Town Girl, and I feel like that is wrong. Hold on. Let, I want to see what you're talking about. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. I see what yeah. you mean. Okay. Yeah. Be- because... Because everyone else is uh, credited OLD, Old Town Girl, and the one black woman that's not Rosario Dawson is credited OL apostrophe town girl, as if to imply some sort of dialect. And I'm like, okay, I know what you mean now. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Yeah. IMDb, do better. Um. Uh. Yeah. So all the Old Town Girls come from a segment where uh ba- for which is we need to break down that segment a lot because there's a lot I want to say about it yeah. where so it starts with Clive Owen's character Dwight and um he is you know staying over at his girlfriend's place and her abusive ex comes back and he you know tries to force himself back into the relationship uh Dwight eventually drives him off but he's like, no, that's not enough. I need to make sure he doesn't hurt anybody else. And so he goes after him and they end up in this place called Old Town, which is run by a bunch of prostitutes. And Rosario Dawson is the head of these people. And, uh, you know, events, you know, go and Dwight ends up killing this abusive boyfriend. And he turns out to be this like highly regarded hero cop. So he's like, oh, dunk, we got to get rid of the body because if people find out that he was killed in Old Town, Old Town will be overrun by cops and there will be a full-on prostitute versus cop war, which, let's be clear, the prostitutes would have won and I would have supported them. Absolutely. And so, like, it's a cool story and all, but what really gets me is at the end of that segment, uh, him and Rosario Dawson had kind of like an on-again, off-again thing, and at the end of the segment, he's like, you'll always be by my side. You will always be mine. My Valkyrie. And they start making out. And I'm like, hey, dude, didn't you do this all for your current girlfriend? Right. Like, what What about Brittany Murphy? Like, we're just throwing her to the side. You're like, oh, yeah, I started this because of you. But, you know, uh, it was too much. So There was no reconciliation. He didn't even go back and talk to her about it. Yeah, he's just like, Gail, you're the one for me. I'm like, Gail? 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 Like, what about Shelly? I get it. Like, listen, if you want to leave Shelly for Gail, I get it. But like, make it official first. Let's have some communication here. And uh, also, there was a lot of weird Nazi symbolism in that segment that they kind of so didn't much? explain. None of it. But- and so like, there were there were some bad guys that had some Nazi symbolism that got killed. And I'm like, okay, I guess I don't need explanation for that because you kill them. So I don't care. But Miho has like a throwing star. Swastika. And um, it's uh, weird. They don't address it. Not a fan of it. 
Nope, hate it. I was like, oh, what? Excuse me? Is that what I think it is? And I think that that's just like a perfect representation of like, this movie is really cool, but like, oh man, there are a lot of bumps in the road. There are quite a few bumps in the road. And I mean, it had, I will say that this movie did have some some good pacing with it to where like, you know, it kept the action up to keep you through the more slower bits of it. But like, it wasn't, you know, super standout-ish, I'd say. Okay, yeah. Um, none of the segments really dragged, which I think goes along with your, the idea of pacing. Um, the only, I think, big pacing problem was um, the first Bruce Willis segment was only yeah. like five or ten minutes. That and needs to so, be more flushed out. And so when they do that, you're first of all, you think it's the end of his segment. That segment ends with enough closure to where like you're content with it. And then you're also left with the thought of, are they all going to be this short? Yeah, for sure. And so I re- I think Marv's, I really like Marv's segment because that's the segment that, that is the comic I read is that story. Um, yeah. And I really like, and I really like that story a lot. I think it's a cool story. I think um, everybody wants someone who after one day of knowing them will go avenge their death. <laughs> Yeah, take on an entire farm, you know, backed by the Pope and a senator. Yeah, like, Craig, would you do that for me if I died? Of course I would do that. How many times do I have to ask you, (laughs) where are we hiding the body? And you haven't even planned anything yet. Hey, Um, we can't put that out there because then they'll know. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, Um, FBI. Uh, uh, It it, it was Elon Musk. Um, Anyway. (laughs) Um, I think Marv is a super interesting character. He's one of those characters that a lot of people could very easily read. I don't want to say a lot of people where some people could very easily read into as like, oh, he's a hopeless romantic. I want to be like him. I want to like, like he is like the pinnacle of respecting women. No, 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 no. Um, like the relationship he has with Goldie and this whole vengeance trip he has is pure. It is so based in like that same idealism of like, she put me in the friend zone. I just need to prove myself. So like, she'll see me for who I truly am. Like, calm down, calm down. Um, so I want to break down that story a little bit because I want to talk about it more, which is, um, so Marv is this guy who like sleeps with a prostitute and she wakes up dead the next day. And she wakes up dead. She wakes up dead. Yeah. He wakes up the next morning with her dead next to him and he's a PI. So he's like, all right, I'll use my sources. I'll find out who she is and who killed him and who killed her. And it turns out to be a much bigger web. You know, the guy that killed her has kidnapped and killed and eaten many other women. And so he takes down this guy and uh, wants to unravel the web of, you know, government conspiracy that allowed this to happen. That's basically that story. And um, this movie has or this segment had some characters introduced that they kind of threw away pretty quickly. Like his um, psychologist or like his uh, parole officer. That's, uh, you know, who he gets his prescription drugs from. You know, she has one scene where she's introduced and then one scene where she's killed. Shocker for this movie. Yeah. And the way that Marv describes 
anybody. It's I it is the most like offensive uh like brutalistic way to describe somebody. <clears throat> like when he finds out that Goldie is dead next to him, he realizes it because he can't stop looking at her boobs and they aren't <laughs> rising and falling with breath. There's so and many tits in this movie. So many. Ooh, so many. And he talks about his parole officer, who is a woman, by calling her a lesbian slur. And he's like, I don't understand why she's a lesbian. She's super hot and can get anybody she wants. And I'm like, yeah, bud, that's kind of the point. Yeah, and she wants women. And uh, Goldie has a twin sister. And whenever she gets introduced into a scene he always he's always like that angelic scent the the reason for life the the meaning of living oh never mind it's just a different equally attractive woman like dude my guy i understand your intentions are not necessarily malicious but let's like (laughs) what you have is not respect not even slightly calling all women dames like what is this the 1910s and it's not this movie is set in like the early 2000s yeah yeah grow up buddy but they do say oh he was born in the wrong time he was born in the wrong time okay let's send him back yeah, yeah. there are some people that's like, oh, he would have done great as like a Roman soldier or a Viking. And I'm like, I don't care. Then let's, <laughs> Whatever. Let's take him and put him there. There are so many scenes where people continue to fight after fatal gunshot wounds. Yeah, what's up with that? Because there's a scene where Marv gets shot like six times and then he gets back up and fights some more. I'm like, buddy... That's not how this works. This movie, like, has a very blurry line between if it wants to be a gritty, realistic story or if it wants to portray superhumans. Yeah, it doesn't make that distinction very clear. Because there's a scene, like, at the beginning of Marv's story when he jumps down, like, 12 like stories of stairs and then swings off a railing like no that no that's wrong incorrect like can we make up our minds that being said i like this movie a lot unironically yeah i think this movie's really cool and good it just has a lot of flaws that you have to understand before going into it it definitely it's not a bad movie i would watch it If somebody had it on, I wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, you have to change this. But, you know, it's not one that I'm like, yeah, let's watch that one over, if that makes sense. It really nails down that detective noir feel that it was very clearly going for. And so if you like that genre, this is just a campy version of that. And so uh, all these characters are super gritty are super, like, melancholic, are super down on their luck, and it nails that aesthetic so hard. Very rarely does it feel like a mystery. None of these feel like uh, they're solving this big, uh, like, master plan. There are some conspiratorial webs, but very rarely is there, like, a plot twist. Right. Um, I do want to give some credit to Elijah Wood, who is probably giving, like, probably the best performance in the movie. So creepy. 
he plays the guy that was kidnapping all the women in Marv's story and like eating them. Doesn't say a single word. Not a word. Not a single word. But he is terrifying. Horrifying. Like chilling to look at. And there's a sequence where uh, after Marv catches him and uh, like he's like, I'm going to torture you the way that you tortured everyone else. And there's this really chilling sequence where Marv is doing this uh, voiceover narration where he's like, he didn't scream a single time. I cut off all of his limbs and brought his attack dog out to eat his guts while he's still alive. And even with his guts on the outside, life spilling from him, he did not scream a single time. And I'm like, that is that is chilling. That is daunting. Chilling. Even as I cut off his head, no screams. I'm like, dude, that dude was messed up. <laughs> It, it's intense. There, there are some pretty intense scenes. Um, this movie is also directed by Robert Rodriguez, who was the director for Spy Kids. <laughs> and what's wild is you can tell. Yeah, just a little bit. You can tell. Because this movie is so CGI reliant on the aesthetic, it looks like it. Yeah. And it looks like it in the way a Robert Rodriguez movie looks like it. Definitely tracks. That that tracks. That makes a lot of things make sense. Also, <laughs> do you know who the guest director for this movie was? Who? Quentin Tarantino. Mm. <laughs> um, I I need to rem- there's a scene he only directed one scene and it's the scene in the Dwight sequence where um he has the cop's head or like the cop's torso next to him when he's driving and the torso is like talking to him and stuff that tracks and uh, and uh and he and they do the uh, he gets pulled over so i think that's the sequence that tarantino directed um but yeah again it tracks that tracks <laughs> There's lots of really cool moments in this movie. I think that all, you know, all three stories really carry their weight. And um, none of it feels wasted, really. Um, There are some characters that feel wasted. But um, no story that I feel like should have been cut. All three of them, I think, are worthy of, you know, being on the screen. For sure. For sure. I agree. Um, Yeah, I I, I think this movie is really cool. I... And did you have any final notes on this? Any any big sweeping things we missed? No. What are you giving it? I think like a seven and a half. Okay. I was I give it like a six six and a half. I think that's that's fair. This has to be your kind of movie. Yeah. This has to be your kind of movie. You have to be down to clown with the <laughs> cheesy. Was that funny? With yeah. me saying down to clown. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be down to clown with the cheesy noir aesthetic. Which I like. And you also have to be willing to overlook a lot of nonsense. Mm. I will admit this. I I will not defend the nonsense that this movie brings. (laughs) Like it can cut a lot of it. But like, I think that nonsense is what brings it down to a seven and a half. If it was the same style with the same gritty writing with not as much like blatant like misogyny like and that mo- racism this movie could be catapulted this movie could be catapulted um but yeah that's why it sits at a seven and a half for me i think this movie is really cool i think the book is worth reading um 
you know, the first book is, you know, the Marv story. So, you know, just understand that, you know, it has a lot of similar tone. So just be aware of that if you do want to read it. Amen. And I think that wraps us up for our Dark Horse Month. Craig, we did it. We made it through. We did it. I mean, it wasn't like a challenge. You know, I liked half of these movies. (laughs) Yeah, but that's still half that we were like... Uh, Anyways, we had some, we had we're some... only gonna enjoy half of. <laughs> we uh, we we we, you know, we had to have some diversity. We can't like them all all the time. But anyway, moving on. Yeah, Craig, what are we watching next month? So this was a struggle for some reason. <laughs> um, we we couldn't decide what to do for next month, so we landed on we're gonna watch the Mummy franchise. All right, we're gonna watch. The Mummy. We're gonna watch the Mummy. The Mummy Returns, and we're gonna watch the Scorpion King, and then we're gonna watch the Mummy, the Sorcerer's Tomb, or whatever that movie's called. What is it called? <laughs> Professionalism. The Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. You are way off. I said tomb. One word. Uh. So yeah, that's gonna be next month. Um. I'm. I think all of these movies, at least as at time of recording, are available on Peacock if you wish to follow along. I have only seen the first one. Say, I've seen the first and second one. And so I have so low expectations <laughs> for the other three. We'll see how it goes. Bottom floor expectations. Um, but uh, yeah, that's next month. We'll see how it goes. I'm Bug and I'm small. And I'm Craig and I'm tall. This has been our Dark Horse Month here on Small and Tall. And we'll see you next month for the Mummy franchise. Have fun, be safe, and make good choices. Mwah!